0: This show has explicit language and probably has mature themes. Hey, Jonathan, would you give us that intro lick? Welcome to Dexplanations. I'm Dexter Sorensen. I look some stuff up on Wikipedia, watch some YouTube about it, and I also listen to a podcast, HI101, about it. And I'm going to explain it to my friend, David Gerondale. David, hi. Hey. Hey. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Me too. I'm also good. Right on. Yeah. um, What are we... uh, Oh. (laughs) I was going to say, before you uh, ask me what we're learning about, I just want to say um we were just barely featured on the podcast discovery show yeah um which is kind of cool that is cool yeah getting a little bit more notoriety maybe discovered. possibly
1: we've we've now been discovered
0: yeah we've been discovered by we discovered a by, a by podcast, the discovery show the podcast discovery show yeah and they said good things about us it was good. nice
1: they discovered us, and they thought it was a good thing that we existed.
0: So yeah, go listen to that. Go listen to that. Them. Go listen to our episode and give them a like, review, rating, whatever. Anyway, now you can ask it. Ask me. Okay. What we're we learning about? What are we gonna learn about? We're gonna do Alan Turing. Ooh. Okay.
1: Turing. Let's do it. Yeah. Oh man, this is okay.
0: We're gonna do it in two parts. We're gonna. Today is gonna be part one. Next week we're gonna do part two. Gotcha. Because it was such a long episode, and also I've just kind of wanted to do a two-part episode for a while now, and this one is gonna be was gonna be significantly longer than really many other episodes, so I just thought, yeah, let's tr- let's try to do a two-parter. Heck yeah. Um, also, there's a
1: lot to say about Turing.
0: There really is. Holy shit. So a lot uh, of it's sad. It, yeah, that's in part two. Okay. Happy um, stuff in this episode, <laughs> mostly. Happy thoughts. Uh, Happy Turing. This this episode is going to be mostly like technical, technical shit. Okay. Um, are we going to do Turing tests on one another? At the very that's in episode two. <laughs> 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 but anyway, let's do the basic intro. Tests make me nervous. I don't know if
1: I'm going to pass. Yeah.
0: Also, also, while we're talking about Turing tests, we're only ever going to briefly talk about them we're not going to talk a lot about them because there's so much talk about turing tests in themselves that they could be another their own episode sure and i'd rather talk about turing tests in an episode about ai
1: right yeah and it's such a small part of turing's contribution to yeah yeah exactly
0: so it's where most people probably know his name, though. Exactly. But it's not him, and it's definitely not the most impactful thing he did.
1: No, no, certainly not. Um, I imagine we're gonna dive into World
0: War II and yeah. you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, so the basic intro. Alan Turing was a mathematician, computer scientist, logician, crypto analyst, philosopher, and theoretical biologist.
1: That's a lot of ists. Ists, yeah. And ishans.
0: <laughs> Seriously, holy shit. He was super influential in the development of theoretical compu- pu- pu- computer science. <laughs> um, basically is the father of all that shit.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the father of the modern computer science. Oh, oh of, of computer science. I thought yeah. you were saying all of his is. No, 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 no,
0: no. Computer science. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways, he and he laid the groundwork and artificial intelligence. Sure, I mean, like, because they're kind of intertwined, yeah,
1: and in, yeah, exactly, they are intertwined. You can't really separate the two because you can't have artificial intelligence without computing first, yeah.
0: But he was thinking already about artificial intelligence, yeah,
1: way back when, when it was like, not hard. even like applicable to any technology that they really had at the time. Like,
0: something he told somebody he was, I can't remember who he was talking to, but he said, There will be a day probably in our lifetimes. Where we will be saying, Oh, my computer in my pocket just told me the funniest thing. Wait, really? Yeah. He said that? <laughs> he said that. Holy shit. That's fucking next <laughs> like, level, dude. Fucking next he was working level. With he was working with like vacuum tubes vacuum and. Tube, and like,
1: Matt, when they, they invented the transistor in what, like 50. I want to say it was like 52, but I'm not. And don't he, quote me on that. It was 50. I think
0: it was 54. Um, that's after he was dead.
1: Oh, jeez. Yeah,
0: <laughs> they were using they were using before vacuum tubes. It was all mechanical too, and uh, he wasn't the one who came up with the vacuum tubes, but any, somebody who was working with him at Bletchley Park, which we're gonna get into, came up with the whole vacuum tube. Thing. Okay, Jesus Christ! That he didn't even have transistors, and he already already foresee- predicted that. Yeah, yeah, predicted it because like you can say he took a guess, but no, this is a highly intelligent man. Very. He was making very, very educated guesses. Yeah. Um, Also, during the Second World War, he worked for the Government Code and Cypher School at Bletchley Park, which was Britain's code-breaking center that produced ultra-intelligence. Yeah. And then, uh, famously, he was prosecuted in 1952 for being gay, which was an offense called gross indecency. Yeah. In, In British common law. In British common law, yeah. Um, so yeah, let's get into his early life. Yeah. And that, that,
1: uh, I mean, that's where really, things get really dark. Yeah. Is right then. Yeah. Because, uh, of it's what they did to him and then the consequences of that. Jesus fuck.
0: Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Happy. Let's get, uh, yeah. <laughs> happy. It doesn't really start even really start that happy. Yeah.
1: But I mean, nothing, it's almost, not, it can't get much more tragic than that for, for yeah. this
0: story. No. I mean, that's uh, definitely the low point is the end. Truth next week um alan turing was born on june 23rd in Maida of vale london and he was actually born to two wealthy families he was born to t- oh i see i see yeah. his
1: grandparents on both sides were,
0: were wealthy his parents on both sides were we- wealthy right and yeah sorry
1: that's what i, I guess what, that's what i meant i was trying to f- figure out how he was born from two families at first and then i realized what you
0: meant yeah his father julius matheson turing was the son of a clergyman the reverend john robert turing and he was from a scottish family of merchants that included a baronet wow yeah and wait uh, is it baronet or baroness i thought it was baroness a baronet oh is, interesting i okay. don't know if it's gender gender specific
1: well i mean because baroness is is what i've heard is the as the female version of the word baron because oh, they yeah. always have to add a s or an et or whatever to make it oh, yeah, diminutive, yeah, yeah. which is what those. Th- by the way, those are French um, suffixes, yeah. and they are diminutive. It's the same reason we have minar and minaret, cigar and cigarette. It is oh, actually yeah. specifically targeted. Originally, when those terms were invented, it was specifically targeted to make sure that we all knew that it's a woman performing this role, not a man. Oh. It is. It was intentionally sexist.
0: Interesting. To
1: use a diminutive to suffix a a woman's profession.
0: Oh yeah, obviously that. But I didn't know about like a cigarette. Like a cigarette was supposed to be diminutive. Well, it's a
1: diminutive because like diminutive doesn't have to be like a mean a slant to it. It just means like small.
0: Okay, I see. So yeah, his pops was actually also a high-ranking member of the Indian civil service which ruled india at the time sure on behalf of the british empire yeah and so he was a high-ranking officer of the army in india okay and then his mom ethel sarah turning <laughs> turning Turing was the daughter of a chief engineer of the madras railways
1: oh wow so
0: both that's uh, a involved fucking in... lot of money yeah and uh, Julius and Ethel, they're both living in in India, but wanted their kids to grow up in London. Okay. So for a short amount of time, they moved back to London to have their kids, Alan and his older brother John. I see. And then, then they moved back, and they had their they had their kids live with a retired army couple. Interesting. Yeah,
1: that would be a. That would be probably kind of shocking as a kid. Yeah,
0: Yeah, exactly. That's what I think. That's why I think it doesn't really start that.
1: Yeah, you're right. And also, like, childhoods back then compared to childhoods today,
0: they're not going to be, like, Mm -mm. happy, fun little stories. No. And so when Alan was six, he was enrolled in a private day school, and the headmistress recognized his talent early on, as did many of his subsequent teachers. Okay. And then... Like so, he was a prodigy early. Yeah, I mean, prodigy has pretty to be much. Early yeah, on, but yeah. Um, and then he went to a public school mm-hmm. in Britain, which is what we would call a private school. Oh, interesting. Which is weird. It's all backwards. So a public school was private. a public school is a private school. Okay. Um, and that was the Sherburne School, which he went to at the age of thirteen. Sherburn. That yeah. sounds uh... harsh.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it kind of does. A lot of meters uh, uh yardsticks
0: <laughs> being whapped on students but he was determined to go wikipedia says the first day of the term coincided with the 1926 general strike in britain but he was so determined to attend that he rode his bicycle unaccompanied 60 miles from southampton to sherborne oh. stopping overnight at an inn what the heck yeah when he was thirteen. Jeez, oh, Pete, yeah. that kid's
1: determined.
0: He's fucking wanted an education. That kid. I think at thirteen, the only thing I would have done that for would be to like play more Halo. <laughs> no, not even that. I'd have been like, "This sucks. I can't play Halo." <laughs> well, to be honest, growing up in the boondocks
1: <laughs> and without like much internet, me and my buddies mostly like most of our activities were riding bikes around because I had oh, to yeah, ride yeah, my yeah. bike two miles to get to my closest friend's
0: house. I spent we spent a lot of time just like throwing rocks at. Uh, bees' nest <laughs> One time, I whacked one with a really long stick, and I thought I could outrun the bees. I couldn't. Yeah, you can't. No, I know that too. They
1: swarmed me within like seconds. I was just <laughs> I covered in bees. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I found out I was allergic to bees. Oh, you're allergic. Yeah, I'm luckily mildly not. so. I don't go into anaphylaxis. But um, they I do say, swell up pretty
0: bad. They say that the more you get stung, if you are allergic, yep. the more allergic you become. Yeah, I
1: haven't been stung in years, but the last time I did, uh, I was actually afraid that I might get my throat might swell up. Shit. Because I got stung on the back of the neck, and my like my neck swelled up so big that I couldn't like fully art- articulate. Like, it. Yeah, it felt uncomfortable.
0: Really. Okay, so yeah, like uh, <laughs> Alan Turing. Um, when he was going to the Sherburne School, they had a like heavy emphasis on the the quote unquote classics. Okay. Like learning Latin, sure. knowing poetry, Ugh. and a bunch of that fucking bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't really help you in life. But Alan like wasn't really into that shit. He was into the sciences. Right. Real. And stuff. he was fucking good at it. Um, his headmaster actually wrote to his parents, writing, "I hope he will not fall between two stools." If he is to stay at public school, he must aim at becoming educated. If he is to solely be a scientific specialist, he is wasting his time at a public school. Huh? What the fuck, dude? Yeah, that's how much they cared about learning. They, I think they just—you had a fucking prodigy on your hands, right? It's because they
1: still—they, I think they still believed in like the old idea of gentle people, right? Gentlemen and gentlewomen, and um, that. In order to be that, you had to have these background knowledge knowledge to make you a
0: sophisticated person. Yeah. Yeah, they were believing in sophistication. Yeah. Yeah. Stupid. He was actually just really good at the studies he lived. He loved. When he was 15, he was solving advanced problems without ever having studied even elementary calculus. So he's a genius. He's, he's actually a, a genius. He's actually fucking genius.
1: Like and and I mean that when I like we throw that word around a lot today but I mean he was an actual
0: genius, he's actual fucking genius prodigy kid. Um in 1928 when he was 16, he encountered Albert Einstein's work. And Wikipedia says not only did he grasp it, but it is possible that he managed to deduce Einstein's questioning of Newton's laws. Of motion from a text in which this was never made explicit. Wow! Oh. <laughs> when he was sixteen. Yeah, yeah. So like he was fucking, he was fucking doing heavy fucking math and understanding it on a level that probably even the adults in his world didn't.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. And and Einstein admits himself that math was one of his weaknesses as far as uh, physics went. Yeah. Um, and of course, this is a genius talking. Like yeah. his his math was. Great. Obviously pretty funny. but great. um, yeah, and so I'm sure that Turing understood his math on, like, a really deep level.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, the math of the universe, really. It's not like Einstein invented it. He discovered it.
0: Yeah. Um, so now let's talk about this kid he w- went to the Sherburn school with. Okay. Christopher Morcom. Um, they became super good friends. Christopher was a year older than him. And... Christopher has been described as Alan's quote unquote first love.
1: Okay, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, and it's because Alan wasn't really well understood by the other kids in school. But with Christopher, he had someone to talk science with and cryptography and maths and like just a bunch of like had somebody to throw his ideas with.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's really important when you don't have anyone who shares your interests, when you find someone who actually does, yeah. and you're that isolated. Like, it's, and, it's almost like e- it's platonic love at first sight.
0: And it's speculative, but like a lot of people think he was in love with Christopher. Right. Romantically. So yeah. Romantically yeah. Yeah. I imagine. Yeah. yeah.
1: Especially. Yeah. Finding somebody who you're that like connected with and yeah. you're a, you're a teenage boy and you know, you,
0: it must've been so fucking hard. You know what I mean? You would feel Alan, so yeah. isolated. Yeah, and uh, and then fucking what made it worse is Christopher died in 1930 from bovine tuberculosis, Ooh. which he got some years earlier from drinking infected cow's milk. Oh, geez, I didn't realize that was a
1: way of contracting that.
0: Yeah, I didn't know that either. And it was actually really, really, really hard for Alan to deal with the passing of his first friend and first true love. Sure. Sure. Um, so he actually, Alan, stayed in contact with Christopher's mom long after Christopher's death. And yeah, in, so
1: not a happy start at all. Not
0: um. a happy start at all, yeah. In one letter he wrote to Christopher's mother, I am sure I could not have found anywhere another companion so brilliant and yet so charming and unconceited. I regard my interest in my work and in such things as, as astronomy, to which he introduced me, as something to be shared with him. And I think he felt the same about me. I know I must put as much energy, if not as much interest into my work, as if he were alive, because that is what he would like me to do. Wow. Yeah, he had like a heavy, heavy fucking respect for Christopher.
1: Yeah. That's a positive outlook, but it's just so sad. It is fucking sad. Like somebody that young having to deal with those types of... grief and loss. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. And also coping sometimes really sad. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the idea, like yeah, he'll cope. I don't. You know,
0: sometimes you just won't want don't people want, to have to fucking. You don't cope. want to fucking have to. Yeah, like that. It's just sucky shit. Yeah, and then like there's like a lot of people who speculate that it was after Christopher's death that Alan started thinking about atheism um, and what consciousness really is. Okay. Yeah. Um, which would later refine his thoughts about computers. But in my opinion, that's kind of just like speculation. It is, yeah, it is. Like throwing yourself into the story, like it is part of the story, but like that's not like explicit anywhere. Right? Yeah. So it's like kind of like speculating. Yeah, it's kind of speculation. Makes sense. It does make sense, but makes a narrative sense, but like. But people's lives are more complicated than the story that we tell about them. Yeah, exactly, and especially with Alan Turing. Sure. Yeah. Um. So yeah, let's. Uh, talk about while he was at university. Okay. So he was an undergraduate at King's College from 1931 to 1934. Okay. He was awarded the highest honors in mathematics, of course. And in 1934, at the age of 22, he was elected a fellow of the King's. Wow! So I don't know what f- that means, but he was sounds- a fellow of the university. Okay. At 22. Dang. <laughs> yeah. Which basically proved how much of a prodigy he was. Yeah,
1: seriously, that they even they re- recognized him at that young age. That's yeah, something surprising that, to me yeah. that they the stuffy professors were willing to exactly. do exactly.
0: And while he was there, he did a bunch of shit in maths that, to be honest, I don't really fully understand. Um, and his like part of what I don't really understand is his dissertation proved what is called the central limit theorem, which is really important for probability theory.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll, so basically this stuff is just way beyond our grasp. Yeah, here's what Wikipedia says. I didn't even get those words.
0: <laughs> <laughs> here's what Wikipedia says about it. The theorem is a key concept in probability theory because it implies that probabilistic and statistical methods that work for normal distributions can be applicable to many problems involving other types of distributions. Oh, I see. So he
1: was kind of extrapolating like a more narrow had, set of math Into like, uh, uh, basically saying like, actually, this, these models operate on many more things in nature than we previously could apply them to. Yeah, basically, he was
0: saying like, if you have a random set of statistics, as far as I understand, if you have like a random input to your model, then they will fall on a bell curve. Whoa, largely, which is not. Thought to be likely or something like that. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Anyway, let's move <laughs> on. let's move on. The strength of that paper is why he was elected to be a fellow at the okay. college. Okay. So so really 22. smart people did understand it they they and did. they understood that it was pretty fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then in 1936, he published a paper titled "On Computable Numbers with an Application to the Entscheidungs Problem." <laughs> <laughs> Entschiedungs. All right, and it's all one word. It's a German word. N- oh, E N T C H E I D U N G S problem. Wow, all one word. Um, so I have no fucking idea what the Entscheidungs problem is, but basically that was the paper where he came up with what would be called Turing machines.
1: Oh, okay,
0: and okay. Uh, that was like absolutely revolutionary, and the birth of computer science. Damn. Um, Man, now
1: I just want to call my computer a Turing machine. Yeah.
0: Yeah. uh, We'll get to a better term. Okay. Um, You can call it Turing Complete. Um, It is still studied and worked with in modern computer science, this paper. wow. Damn. Yeah. (laughs) But, like, let's back up a little bit. In order order to understand Turing machines, um, I think it's actually helpful to understand what computational power really was in the early 20th century <laughs> an abacus <thing? laughs> an abacus <laughs> exactly like in the early 20th century a computer was a fucking person yep yeah it was literally
1: a, it was a job yep it was a job exactly yeah like you how, were a
0: computer yeah how a teacher teaches a computer computes yep um and it was like not really unskilled labor but it was considered kind of like secretarial
1: yeah. In fact, I think often um, maybe this wasn't until during the war, but this was a position often um, uh, held by women. Yes.
0: Yeah. And
1: in, in a very real social sense, relegated to women. Yeah. 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 Um, because it was it was math. But like, you know, and it was fucking
0: hard math. But it it was. was not
1: respected. It wasn't respected. No. Yeah. That's, that's what thing. I was trying to get. at. It was yeah. not a respected position. Mm-hmm. It was looked down upon.
0: So, yeah, like, you were mentioning earlier, like, they had, sli- they had slide rules, they had abacuses, but it was really just fucking brute force. It was menial. And it was very menial. Menial work. Yeah, like, your boss would come by and be like, I need you to compute this shit by tomorrow. Yep. And then you had till to tomorrow to fucking compute that shit. Yep. That's what a computer was at the time. So, like, when he comes up with this, uh, quote-unquote, automatic machine... Is what he called it. Okay. Um, it was revolutionary. Like, of course, they had like a loom, which could be quote unquote programmed with a punch card where the punch card would say whether the needle was to go under or over. Oh, okay. Or whatever. Oh, I didn't and, realize
1: that. That's cool.
0: Yeah. So they had like looms that kind of like were, could be considered. It was like an analog. Yeah, it um, was like an like analog machi- computer almost. Like or programmable machine. Yeah, that's a good way to um, put it. It was a
1: programmable machine, but it was non-digital.
0: Yeah. And so uh, with, Tur- with Turing's automatic machine, he would have a slip of tape with symbols on it, and he would look down on the symbols and only be able to see one symbol at a time. And he thought of it as having an operator, but it could easily not have an operator. And anyway, so the operator sees a certain symbol, and then they have a specific operation to perform. Oh, okay. Or a thing to do on the machine. Right, right. And he also said that the output could affect the input, and so the tape could be looped back into the machine and could affect it in the future.
1: like a feedback mechanism. Yeah,
0: and so, like, basically, they could be writing on tape that is still to be going through the machine. Wow. And so they could be doing really specific problems with the automatic machine. Okay, yeah, yeah. And that was the first thing he talked about, the automatic machine in Enscheiden's problem solving it paper. But he also came up with the idea of a programmable machine that could simulate any automatic machine. And he called that machine a universal machine. Jesus. And this is that would be next level. The fact that
1: one person was having all these fucking ideas is just damn! What a Bogart!
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> seriously, holy shit! <laughs> and so he was like, he was like, we can make a machine that could simulate any specific automatic machine, and we would call that machine a universal machine. Sure. And that machine that could simulate any automatic machine could actually compute anything that's actually computable. Oh my.
1: What the hell?
0: Yeah. And if you have that, if you have a machine that can compute anything computable, that's called Turing Complete. Turing Complete. Or a universal machine. Okay. And that's pretty much what a fucking computer is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's... (laughs) Like, that's why it's such a groundbreaking paper.
1: Yeah, I mean, he wasn't working with all the same tools we are today, but he
0: achieved the same result.
1: Yeah, he achieved the same concept.
0: And, uh, yeah, and that's why the that paper is the basis of the model of a general purpose computer. Okay. And that's why also he's considered to be the father of computer science. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like if you have a way to put an input in and an expected output and a way to reach that output with your machine, that is computer science. Sure. Um, and then also he talked about as your Turing machine gets better and better you can get to a point where your Turing machine is doing calculations that people can't do or would take them a lot longer to do. Oh yeah. So he
1: actually in, he invented something that was superior to human computers. Yeah.
0: Wow. Theoretically.
1: Yes, in a paper.
0: Yeah. And then like he talked about you could set it up so it's automated without the operator. And you could have it run 24 hours a day and do computations in a quicker manner than humans ever could, like I was just saying. Um, So after he wrote that, which was fucking world-changing at such a young age, he went on to study at Princeton as a visiting fellow from 1936 to 1938, where he got his PhD. And he was actually working with this one dude who tried to recruit him to work on the, God, where, what was it called where they developed the nuclear bomb?
1: Oh, oh yeah, um, the Manhattan Project. Yeah,
0: tried to recruit him to work on the Manhattan Project. Okay. But he went back to London. Oh. And when he got back to London in 1938, he started working part-time at the Government Code and Cypher School, which was the British code-breaking organization. Right. Called the and CS. G-C-N-C-S. Or GC and CS for short. Okay. And GC and CS was really interested in this German encryption device called the Enigma machine. Oh yeah. Yeah, and the Enigma machine, Enigma machine <laughs> was crazy effective. And the Germans and really most people thought that the codes it produced were unbreakable. Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. It was
1: commonly held belief that they were completely unbreakable. And and absolutely. It was, yeah, they like had invented no a perfect fucking, machine.
0: Br- yeah. Like uh, later on, the British would make a machine based on the Enigma Enigma machine, and the Germans would never it called Type X. Okay, and the Germans would never try to break it because they knew it was based on Enigma.
1: Oh my goodness, they didn't even try <laughs> they because they were like, tried. no, it's
0: impossible. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's describe the Enigma machine. Okay, cool. This is where we're going to end part one. Okay. Yeah. I don't really,
1: I don't really know anything about how it works. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This was kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around. Okay. Um, so it looks kind of like a fucking fancy typewriter. Um, it has three rotors on the top that serve as the settings for the machine. Okay. Later versions had more replaceable rotors. But each rotor can be placed into one of 26 settings, one for each letter of the alphabet. Okay. And in between the keyboard and the rotors is what's called the lamp board. And the lamp board is a series of lights which light up individual letters of the alphabet. And they are arrayed just like a regular keyboard. So you have your keyboard, the lamp board with the lights, and then you have the rotors which can be manipulated. So like the, the lamp board almost like put spotlights on certain letters. It's, it's or? just like it. It's just like a series of lights along it that look like a keyboard, but it's not a button to be pressed. It's just that letter will light up. I see. And then, so after you input the settings into Enigma, you type out your messages on the keyboard and then after each keystroke a light will appear on a s- s- different letter than the letter you pressed okay on the lamp board. sure and the rotors will either click forward one space or they won't okay so the the rotors don't like the rotors don't stay in the same spot as you're typing out your message okay and that's an like, important part so like if you press a a a a a it's going to come out as five different letters on the other side. Gotcha. So. Seemingly random letters. Seemingly random. Okay. Because each rotor can be placed into one of 26 settings. Sure. And they might move, they might not move. They might move, they not, might not. Okay. Um, so you need the same machine, the same Enigma machine with the same configuration in order to get the same output. Okay, so were they made in pairs? They were made like in batches? Were... They were made standardly. Actually, they were commercial. They were a commercial product well before the war. Like in the oh. 1920s, the Enigma machine was just a commercial product in Germany. Okay. And then the Germans picked it up and added like a lot of different modifications.
1: You mean the Germans the picked German, it up is like the, the German the effort, yeah, the Nazi the Nazi war effort picked it
0: picked it up and made a lot of different modifications I to see. it to make it like harder to decrypt and shit. And so, like another like one of the things that the Nazis did is they added what's called a plugboard into the front of the Enigma machine, and what that is is. It's a thing where you can change what the input is for different letters before it even gets to the rotors. So like you can like plug one end of a like you can plug A into F. So when you press so you get a, a specific... when you press A, it is sending the letter F into the rotor. Oh, and then the letter And then the letter F is going through the rotors to further change it.
1: So it's like a double coding it's machine at double, that point. Yeah. It's double encoding it.
0: Exactly. Um, so they need to have the same rotor configuration. They have to have the same plugboard configuration and they have to have like the same machine.
1: Right. Okay.
0: Um, like, it, and at one point, because they kept improving the Enigma machine as the war went on, they had around 150 trillion possible configurations. Whoa! 150
1: trillion possible configurations. Yeah. So like, oh, that's fucking. Crazy. I mean, like that's that's you know. Roughly 150 times the generic figure we give for the number of stars in the... (laughs) Or no, there's a billion stars in the galaxy. So yeah, that's like uh, 1,000... It's a lot! It's a a big fucking number. It's a big
0: fucking number. And it was a two-person job to run the Enigma machine. Oh, okay. So when transmitting, one person would type out the message and another person would read the lamp board and send out the encrypted message via Morse code on the radio. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And then when receiving the message, one person would type out the Morse code message they heard on the Enigma machine, and the other person would write down the message as it appeared on the lamp board. I see. Yeah. I see. Okay. And uh so yeah, um it's kind of a it's kind of hard to pick where to separate these two episodes, but I think That is where we're going to end this first Alan Turing Part 1. Okay. We just described the Enigma machine.
1: And we know that he's working on it.
0: He's going to be working on it. World War II hasn't broken out yet. The Polish have actually been working on the Enigma machine before the war, but by this time they hadn't shared what they knew with the British.
1: I see. Okay. Put the cards close to the chest.
0: Yeah. And then one interesting thing to leave you with is that Alan Turing was a world-class long-distance runner. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had forgotten about that. He was not just... He was an athlete. He was a fucking crazy-ass athlete. He would he would have actually qualified for the Olympic trials if it had not been for an injury. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and... His best time would have gotten him a fucking silver medal at that year's Olympics. Holy shit! So yeah, yeah
1: he's not just like a regular old good athlete. No, he's like <laughs> he's one like of the best in the entire class. world. Yeah. yeah,
0: for long distance running, Hubble like, was kind of like that. I mean, he didn't—he didn't—he didn't, he never competed I've heard for Hubble the Olympics. Was an asshole.
1: Yeah, he was a massive, gaping asshole. Apparently, uh, <laughs> enormous prick. Uh, people couldn't stand to work with him.
0: But, um, but he goes. was a lot of... like
1: one time in high school, he took uh, from a regional track meet. He took home three gold medals in a single really event, not a single event. Sorry, like a single meet, you know? Oh, yeah. But yeah, like yeah. Uh, not like in a, in a three single event. Events, he took three events. Three and gold medals. Meet, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, he would regularly run from Bletchley Park, which is where he'll be working in the next episode to London for meetings, which was 40 miles away.
1: What the hell,
0: man? <laughs> Seriously. Dang, I guess there's well,
1: bike rides early
0: on. Well and then another thing I guess we can talk about in this episode, because I didn't talk about it in the last in the next episode, is that a lot of people talk about him as being like uh being really eccentric. Like a lot of people say that he was he was like really had really bad hay fever, so he would sometimes wear a gas mask while riding his bike to work. Oh, okay. So he's practical. I basically. think that's not very eccentric. I think that's just fucking smart.
1: Yeah, I think for the times like, it would be
0: considered eccentric because like people were so
1: concerned with appearances that um Yeah. You know, they wouldn't resort to that sort of thing. But it's just practical. It's fucking like It's called pragmatism.
0: Seriously. And then like he kept having this mug. He kept having all his mugs getting stolen from him. And so he would Chain his mug to a radiator. And uh, people were like, Oh, that Alan Turing, he's so fucking weird. He keeps chaining his mug to a radiator. No, he's fucking sick of his mug getting stolen. Yeah. Like also, who the hell is what shitty colleagues? Seriously. Um, but yeah, that's what I got for this. Mugged Alan up Turing, his mug. Alan Turing number one. Turing number one. You got anything else you want to get into that you don't think we're gonna get
1: into? <laughs> nah. I I'm I'm gonna wait and see what uh Next week's episode holds.
0: All right. So that is it for this episode. Dexplanations is recorded at Pen Studios in Eugene, Oregon. It's produced, edited, and provide them sweet licks by Jonathan Cunningham. Art and logo and social media by Monet Moran. My trusty co-host is David Gerondale right over there. Me. I want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon. Alexis, Amanda, Ben, Betty, Kevin, Derek, Emily, Hannah, Linda, Nick, Susan, Tanner, Tori, and Trevor. And our only tattoo patron ever is Brittany. Thanks, y'all. We really, really appreciate it, and your support really helps the show. If you, too, want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash dexplanations. Tell a friend to listen to your favorite episode or leave a review on iTunes. All these things help a lot because we're trying to get more exposure for the show, and we really appreciate you for the support. Likely, we got a bunch of things wrong. If you want to tell me about it or just want to bullshit, hit me up at podcast at gmail.com, tweet us at explanations or comment on the Instagram. I'll bring it up in a later episode or do a new episode about it. Oh, and as for you, you're a clever person with a fine wit. Bye now. <laughs>